It is a blessing to be able to worship with you, to celebrate this Father's Day. I've got a couple individuals who are going to bring out a couple things for me, but let me take a moment and just celebrate Father's Day with you guys today. Uh, For many of us today, we are reminded of fathers who are no longer with us, and hopefully for each of you, you have the opportunity to reflect on a father who truly modeled righteousness and grace to you. But the reality is that would not be the case for all of us. I want to encourage you today, regardless of the father that you had in your life, I want to encourage you to fill the role of a godly parent in the lives of people today. I will tell you, I did not have a godly father in my life. Uh, My father accepted the Lord really on his deathbed, uh, died at uh, 67. It was uh, two years ago this past August. And when he did, my brother had the opportunity to share with him and he was ready to meet the Lord. But I want you to realize that he lost great opportunity. You see, other people became that father figure to me. They took the role that he could have had, but I'm telling you, without those other people, I wouldn't be where I am today. Whether you're a father or not today, realize you have a great opportunity to pour into the lives of other people, to help them become the men and women of God that they are called to be. Now, you guys know that I've been working through a series on the three chairs, and I decided to get a little creative with you today since it's Father's Day. Now, I'll just remind you what the three chairs are. I'll go in the order that I've preached so far. Uh, First of all, this would be the hot seat. That's why it's red. It just made sense to have a red chair for the hot seat. If I could have found a blue one for the cold, I would have done that. The hot seat is the position that each of us ought to seek to be in as children of God. These are individuals who are so passionately in love with God. We are so on fire for him that nothing else could satisfy us. It's really what God desires for every one of us. But the reality is very few of us are actually seated in that seat. In fact, even since I began this series, I've asked multiple individuals, what seat would you identify yourself as being in? And I've only had one individual tell me that they felt like they were in this red chair. I have had a couple of them that, remember the first week that I talked about this, I said it's possible for an individual to have one cheek on one chair and one cheek on another chair. And I have had several individuals who said that they felt like they were getting close to that red chair, but they didn't feel like they were there yet. On the other side of the equation is the cold chair, which is this is metal and it is cold. It actually feels really good right now. Uh, This is the seat where Really, you would think that this is the worst place to be, but it's actually the second worst place to be. This is the place where you do not know God at all. You may know of him. You may know something about him. You may have heard a little bit about him, maybe from a friend at work or maybe even a family member, but you have never entered into that relationship with Jesus Christ. You say, well, how can anything be worse than that? Because Jesus looks at the one who is in the lukewarm chair. And he says, because you are neither hot nor cold. Because you are lukewarm, I am about to spit you. I'm about to spew you. I'm about to vomit you out of my mouth. I almost had to ask for help to get out of that chair, just to let you know. This is the position that unfortunately would probably identify most within the body of Christ. It's not supposed to be that way. Why is it that 
God would look at us and he would say, I would rather you sit in this cold chair, this position of being completely separated from God. Why is it that he would say, I would rather you not have anything to do with me than for you to be in this position of a lukewarm believer? I'm going to suggest to you today that a part of the reason is simply because we are giving a bad name to who Jesus Christ is. Let me read the passage to you one more time. Revelation 3, beginning in verse 15, says, I know your deeds, that you are neither cold nor hot. I wish you were either one or the other. So because you are lukewarm, neither hot nor cold, I am about to spit you out of my mouth. You say, I'm rich, I have acquired wealth and do not need a thing, but you do not realize that you are wretched, pitiful, poor, blind, and naked. I counsel you to buy from me gold refined in the fire. So you can become rich and white clothes to wear so you can cover your shameful nakedness and salve to put on your eyes so you can see. Those whom I love, I rebuke and discipline. So be earnest and repent. Here I am. I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in and eat with that person and they with me. As I look around our society today, all the things that are going on around us, I realize how much of a problem this lukewarm chair has become. You saw all the events that took place this past week, a horrible tragedy. Makes no sense whatsoever. The things that happened in Charleston, it's an offense not only against those who are of different ethnicities, but the body of Christ. These people gathered together to worship, to be able to pray, to be able to seek the Lord, to be able to learn his word. And in the process, they were killed. That song we just sang, A Few Good Men, says what this dying world could use is a willing man of God who dares to go against the grain and works without applause. A man who will raise the shield of faith, protecting what is for pure, whose love is tough and gentle. A man whose word is sure. I will tell you today that our world is desperate for a few good men who will actually be what God called them to be. Not to be people who are somewhat like what God called us to be, which is really what this lukewarm chair is. These are individuals who they know what they ought to be and they are similar to that, but they are not truly where they need to be and they are not the godly examples that God is calling them to be. Our world is desperately in need of a few good men. My hope and prayer is that within this room today, there will be some who will stand up and be the men and women that God has called us to be. This morning, I want us to look at what it means to be lukewarm, neither hot nor cold. It is an undesirable position in the sight of God, but it is the position that far too many in the body of Christ have chosen. We're not all that different from the people of Laodicea, as seen in the passage we just read. First, let me give you some background on Laodicea. This was a city that was uniquely situated between the cities of Colossae and Hierapolis. Colossae was blessed with a cold water spring 
that supplied water to nearby cities like Laodicea. As the water originated in Colossae, it was incredibly refreshing. But by the time it reached Laodicea, a five-mile journey, it was lukewarm and no longer brought that sense of refreshing. On the other side, Hierapolis was blessed with a hot spring. And just as Colossae supplied water to Laodicea, so did Hierapolis. As it came out of the hot spring, it was great for medicinal purposes. It was a great resource to the people. Yet by the time it made that six-mile journey to Laodicea, it was no longer a hot spring. It was a lukewarm supply of water, really no different from the supply of cold water coming from Colossae. Laodicea was also a city of great wealth. There, were, there was a bank, banking center in the region there within Laodicea. Granted them great privileges that other cities lacked. They had gladiatorial games, almost like having a sports team in your town. They had theaters, all kinds of opportunities for comfort and leisure. It was also a major textile producer in the region, producing a very unique black wool that would be very expensive on the market. They even had a medical school, and they were famous for an ISAV that they frequently used. More than likely, they would have seen their wealth and resources as evidence of God being pleased with them. God wouldn't bless us if we weren't doing so well. Yet as they looked at all of their wealth and prosperity, there was something missing. Bible commentator Craig Keene says, I fear that the problems of the Laodicean Christians are most like our own. I believe that he is correct. This could have been an accurate description of the Christian church in the United States today. We are wealthy. We have everything we need. We have our schools. We have our hospitals and our entertainment. What else could we need? We assume that all these things are the result of God's blessing because we must be doing well. He must be pleased. But God says, I am about to spit you out of my mouth. That means he's disgusted. He's disgusted because we've taken the name of Christian, yet we live like we don't have to obey him. It seems like society these days has made it so that we call ourselves Christians, go to church, and be saved without having to follow Christian ways. The misconception is that there are these true disciples, the followers of Christ, and then there are these quote-unquote Christians who believe in Jesus, but their lives don't really change. The scary thing is that society has made this an acceptable practice. Whereas in the Bible, it's clear that Jesus doesn't give us much room to call ourselves Christians and not follow him. Does it really make sense to you that there could be someone who doesn't really obey the commands of Jesus, yet is truly a saved Christian? The Bible says in 1 John 2, 4, that if anyone calls themselves a Christian and does not obey the commandments, then he is a liar and the truth is not in him. Like the people of Laodicea, 
Too many Christians in America have taken on the name of Christ, yet we live like we no longer need him. Our pride wells up when we think of all that we're able to do, but God says, without me, you are nothing. And the hypocrisy is overwhelming. Dads, how many of us are very intentional to live one way in front of our friends and at work or even in church? Yet we come home, sit back in our easy chair, and we become absentee fathers, present in a physical sense, yet absent in our involvement with our families. Still, we have other dads who would justify their sin solely on the assumption that if God is still blessing us, then I must be okay. I must be pleasing him. But I'm telling you that it's not okay. Lukewarm living is not acceptable for anybody who would claim to be a child of God. Now, the reality is I think that everybody in here would agree with that. I think everyone here would say, you're right. I don't want to be halfway. I don't want to be in the middle. I don't want to be lukewarm. I want to be passionate. But then there's this question, how do I fix it? How do I become the man or the woman that God's called me to be? Because I've tried so many times before, yet for whatever reason, it seems as though it hasn't worked out. I've failed. And I doubt this time will be any different. Let me suggest to you today that overcoming the lukewarm life is not about you making a better commitment. In fact, it's not really about your ability or your determination at all. Instead, the overcomer is one who realizes that you can't do this on your own. In our passage, we see God's recipe for success. He lays it out for us very clearly and simply. He says, I counsel you to buy from me gold refined in the fire. So you can become rich and white clothes to wear so you can cover your shameful nakedness and salve to put on your eyes so you can see. Notice that he takes the same items that signified their wealth and prosperity and he suggests that they are still lacking these things. It's almost as if they've settled for a cheap imitation of the real thing. They've got a banking center, but God offers them gold. They've got this unique black wool, but God offers them a white robe to cover their shameful nakedness. And they've got this healing salve, but God offers them a salve that will grant them true vision. And of course, where this applies to us goes beyond those specific items. Sure, we love the idea of gold and a covering for our sin and the idea of, of experiencing healing or seeing through God's eyes, but I think it's just as important to realize the source of all these things. It's not our commitment or our abilities. It's the Lord who grants those things. Know that there is no other source to true wealth, to forgiveness, or healing. It is only through Jesus Christ. He says, I counsel you to buy from him. He's the only one that can provide that. Let me suggest another thing to you this morning. I don't believe that anything God said in scripture is random. I think he was very intentional, even in the way he addressed these letters and the way he concludes these letters. 
Look at the way he concludes this letter to the church of Laodicea. Those whom I love, I rebuke and discipline. So be earnest and repent. Here I am, I stand at the door and knock. And if anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in and eat with that person and they with me. Everything about that, those two verses, suggests intimacy. Imagine a father who attempts to rebuke and discipline without also investing in an intimate love relationship with those children. It's not going to work. It'll be like continually running into a brick wall. Eventually, you may force your way through, but only after great pain and sorrow. Now, fathers want to be able to rebuke and discipline their children. They also need to be actively communicating their love with their children. This is very much about intimacy. God says, I love you. I have invested in you. And I love you too much to not discipline you. I see your sin. And I can't just turn the other way and pretend that everything's okay. You think you have everything you need, but you are lacking a right relationship with him. So what does God want us to do? He says for us to be earnest and repent. The first part of that, to be earnest, is about making sure that this is more than just empty words. Far too many of us know what this is like. We say sorry or we commit to doing something, but there's very little intention on actually following through on what we say. But the Lord says to be earnest and then to repent. He's saying to put some effort into this. As you repent, don't just speak empty words. Do something about it. Make sure it's more than just words. Instead, let your repentance also be a form of intimacy. Come before the Lord with humility and transparency. Admit your sin and invite God to come in and change who you are. Do you know how intimate that truly is? It's hard to admit when you've messed up. It's hard to admit when you've made a poor choice. Because the moment you do, you become vulnerable. Everybody else knows the baggage that you have. The one you've confessed to may become angry and bitter toward you. Or they may embrace you and help you stand up so that you don't have to continue to walk that same path of failure. This is an incredibly intimate thing. Be earnest and repent. Come before the Lord with a sincere heart, a genuine heart that is sorrowful for the way we've behaved, yet willing to do whatever it takes to make things right. That's what it means to be earnest and to repent. And within all of it is an incredible Symbol of intimacy. The last part of this recipe for overcoming the lukewarm Christian life is found in a meal. Revelation 3.20 says, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in and eat with him and he with me. 
Now, I've heard so many messages on that door that he's knocking on. And the fact that God is merely knocking, not forcing his way in, but rather it's up to us to open the door. And I'll tell you, all of these are great messages. But don't miss out on what's happening once the door is opened. Jesus promises a meal, a time to sit down and to affectionately interact with God. It was a theologian, Francis Chan, who said, the solution to living a lukewarm life is not trying harder. The solution is falling madly in love with Jesus Christ. It's not about you getting better. It's not about you being stronger or having more willpower. It is about you falling deeply in love with Jesus Christ. Because when that happens, we will by nature have a hunger and a thirst to satisfy him, to bring pleasure to him, to live in such a way that we would even imitate him. As a dad, I'll tell you some of the greatest joys for me has been when I've been able to see my children imitate me. Some simple ways I can remember laying on the floor and I had one arm out like that and I'm watching TV and I look down and Andrew was probably two years old and there he is beside me exactly like this. Not moving at all because he wanted to be exactly like dad. I can remember with multiple children worshiping the Lord in a church service, and just raising my hand, not because I'm looking for a reaction out of anybody, but simply because I am celebrating the God that I worship and looking down and seeing my kids with their hands raised as well. There is no greater compliment than to imitate those whom you love. When we fall madly in love with Jesus Christ, we will by nature imitate him. This is all about intimacy. This is all about having a true love relationship with him. It begins with us realizing how intimately and powerfully God loves us already. He loves us so much that he could not overlook our sin. And then we respond to his love by becoming vulnerable. And in turn, we get to intimately sit down with our Lord. There's no wonder why the promise is given in Revelation 3.21 that says, To him who overcomes, I will give the right to sit with me on my throne just as I overcame and sat with my father on his throne. That is an incredible display of intimacy. To actually sit on the lap of Christ on his throne, celebrating him. If you want to move from this chair, then it's going to require a lot more than you just saying, you know what, I'm going to do it. I want to challenge you today to truly fall in love with Jesus Christ all over again. The idea is that probably most of us at one point or another had that incredible love relationship with him. 
Somewhere along the way, though, we slipped out of this chair and we found ourselves over here. I don't know, maybe it was all the distractions, all of the things that were going on. Maybe something bad happened somewhere in your life. And all of a sudden you became so focused on the problem, the things that were there, that the next thing you know, you thought you were over here, but you woke up one day and realized you're not. You're over here instead. I don't know. Maybe it was something within the family. Maybe it was all the responsibilities that you have as a father. Whatever it was that caused you to move from that position of being in a passionate love relationship with Christ to being over here, it's never too late as long as you have breath to make things right between you and God. And I believe that today should be that day. What greater way to celebrate Father's Day than for you to become the father or the mother or the role model that you are supposed to be. I'm going to ask if you would, if you'd bow your heads and close your eyes. I'm also going to ask if you'd stand. If you bow your heads and close your eyes and stand. It's time to get up out of the easy chair. If you really want to be different, if you really want to walk as one who is truly filled with the Spirit, and one who will change your world, then it's time to look at your relationship with God. It is time to come before him and to repent. It's time to get a clean slate. I'm going to open up the altar for you this morning. There's no other invitation today. It's simply this. If you know that you are living in that lukewarm seat of comfort, of compromise and complacency, and you want to get up and move to the seat of passion and power, then it's time to come before the Lord and truly surrender everything. Of just a closer walk with thee. As she plays, I invite you to come. A time of prayer will follow. We invite you to come as she plays. Father, as we come before you now, Lord, we confess that there have been times that we have allowed compromise to work in. And as a result of that compromise, we have become something distasteful to you. Where you have told us in your word that you are about to spit us out or vomit us out of your mouth. Well, we come before you and we confess that we have fallen short of what you desire for us. But we come before you now asking for your forgiveness and for your grace. But we want to get up and we want to move from that chair of complacency and comfort. And we want to be filled with your passion and your power. We want more of you than we ever could have had on our own. Lord, I pray today at this very moment that you would grant us the victory. Lord, give us a hunger and a thirst for you, not just for your righteousness, but for you, to know you and to love you and to experience 
you in a way that we have not experienced in a very, very long time. Lord, I pray today that you would restore unto us the joy of your salvation. For you are great. And you have given us the privilege to rise above the world of complacency that surrounds us. Help us not to be Christians who simply take the name of Christian, but do not live as those who are Christians, who are filled with your spirit. But help us to live as those who have been redeemed. To be a model of righteousness to the next generation. Lord, I pray today for our fathers. I pray that your hand would be upon them. And I pray that as their children look at them, they would not need blinders to be able to avoid the things that they shouldn't see. But rather, I pray that those fathers would be the men that you've called them to be. Where repentance is necessary, I pray that you would demand it of their hearts. Lord, I pray today that you would raise up a new generation of men and women who truly are more concerned about a love relationship with you than they are anything else. I pray for each of those who have come to the altar this morning, but also pray for those who perhaps are still in their pews today. Lord, I pray that your Holy Spirit would fill them as they surrender everything to you. Lord, may you be honored. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. I ask if everyone would remain standing. We're going to close with a hymn today. It's a beautiful hymn of the church as we truly surrender ourselves to him. Just a closer walk with me, with thee. Join us.
Jesus is my plea. Daily walking close to service this morning. A couple things I need you to know. First of all, the BYF uh, gathering this Thursday will take place at the church rather than at wherever you were going in Georgia. It's going to be at the church on Thursday. If you need to, see Barbara Woody if you have questions about that. Uh, and then we also have a gift for all the fathers that are present today. Uh, the teens are in the back already and they've got them, so I ask if you would, as you leave, be sure to grab that. Uh, I celebrate Father's Day with you and I hope that you can truly celebrate this as a great day because this is the day that the Lord has made and He has blessed you more than you ever could imagine, most of all with His salvation. I hope this is a great day for you as well. Thank you for being with us this morning. Go in peace.